Many of you may be familiar with the name Corey Ten Boom. She was the first female in the Netherlands to become a watchmaker in the middle of the last century, but that's not what she's known for. At the age of 48 during World War II, Corey, along with her family, began to hide Jews in a, a hidden closet, much the size of, of a walk-in closet here in the United States, uh, from the Nazis. In 1944, Corey and her entire family of 30 people were betrayed by an informant that posed as a Jew seeking help. The whole family was arrested and imprisoned in a concentration camp. She and her sister, both Dutch Reformed Christians, would hold worship services in their barracks. And Corey was miraculously released from prison due to a clerical error just days before all the females in her age group were killed. Most of her family died in the concentration camps. In 1971, she wrote uh, a wonderful memoir uh, entitled The Hiding Place, and in it she tells this story. She says, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at the concentration camp Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing to me. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, Jesus has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people of Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed. I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges upon, but upon his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. In that moment, Corey knew the miraculous power of the cross. She knew the power that came from the gospel that had reconciled her, a sinner, to Christ. But it had also reconciled her to someone for whom she had only previously had hostility. Because he too had been reconciled to her Savior. Corey Ten Boom had a powerful witness because she knew well that God had shown her a radical gospel of reconciliation. Should she have run into that man in the middle of the concentration camp, there was no need to reconcile, for God himself was just as angry at the man as she was. When we walk in unrepentant sin, forgiveness is not there. It's there for the taking, but we refuse it. And she was right to have hostility towards him in that concentration camp, for he was doing what was against the Creator's heart. 
But in this moment, in this church, he was no longer just a concentration camp guard. He was now a brother in Christ. And so everything must be laid down at that point for the purpose of the gospel of reconciliation. And the reason her witness has been heard the world over is because she not only received the gospel of reconciliation, but she extended the radical gospel of reconciliation. As we saw the last few weeks, Paul spent all of chapter 2 detailing God's work of salvation, his work of reconciliation that has initiated a new covenant community. And in describing this new community that has been reconciled to God and one another, he's used multiple metaphors. He's spoken of the family of the Father God that is loved and is receiving an inheritance, the body of the Son that is called to act on behalf of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit experiencing the power of being his dwelling place. And this message of God bringing together the Jews and the Gentiles that were previously divided is so powerful that Paul is about to break into spontaneous prayer in the book of Ephesians. If you're not already there, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 6 today. And what we'll see is that Paul, because of the great understanding he has for this radical gospel of reconciliation, he is about to just burst into spontaneous prayer. You ever had those moments where you're so overwhelmed with the love of Christ and the goodness of his gospel that you break down and in, in cry or you break out in song. Last night as I was sitting preparing, uh, just uh, listening to classical music and doing my study, I just broke down in the midst of my teaching because it was so apparent how good our God is. And the reality is, is that often we go through life so quickly and so fast that we forget to stop and smell the salvation and understand the goodness of Jesus. And Paul was a master at this. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, he saw because of God's goodness that he wanted to break out in thanksgiving for the people of God. A spontaneous prayer. And here again in 3, 1, Paul is about to break into spontaneous prayer. If you look at it with me right there in verse 1, we know it's a prayer because verse 1 and verse 14 start the exact same way. And so as I'll show you, verses 2 through 13 are a parenthetical point. It's like he's in the midst of talking and he stops and he turns to share something else. And so verse 1 says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he stops for a second and moves forward. And we'll see that in a second. But verse 14, then he picks it back up and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. But now I'm moving into what Pat's going to teach us in a couple weeks, so I'll let him teach us that. This is an amazing thing that Paul is praying that the church might understand the fullness of what God has done for them so that they might actually act and live within the calling to which they have been called. But before he gets to that prayer, we have verses 2 through 13, where Paul breaks off of his thought in prayer to give us a message so that he might be assured that the listeners truly understand the radical gospel of reconciliation. Let's take a look there at the first three verses of chapter 3, and we'll see what I'm talking about. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. 
assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. He pauses for a second because he's unsure that his readers know the fullness of the gospel, and so he wants to tell it to them, and he starts out by saying this. You can write this down if you're taking notes. This is the first thing that we see, the gospel as revealed to Paul. The gospel is revealed to Paul. We were blessed to be reminded of some of the snapshots of the story of Paul as Ian and Cassie read to us from the book of Acts. The reading from Acts 28 reminded us of the state of Paul's life when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians. Sometimes I think we forget to look at the cultural context around a book, but Acts 28 tells us that he was imprisoned during that time. He was under house arrest in Rome. Now, this is a flexible imprisonment, but a prisoner nonetheless as he awaited his meeting, his audience with Caesar. And so that's why he says, I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And what was it that he was preaching during this time? Acts 28.20 says it was the hope of Israel for which he was wearing this chain. Acts 28.23 says it was the kingdom of God that he was preaching. Acts 28.31, it was the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Was Paul not preaching the gospel? All this kingdom stuff, all this hope of Israel stuff. No, that is absolutely the gospel. He was preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was imprisoned in Rome because he was so transformed by what had been revealed to him. That he had gone throughout the empire spreading the good news of this gospel of the kingdom. And this good news that Christ, it was that Christ had been reconciled or Christ had reconciled us to God and to one another. And in so doing, he'd established a kingdom, and in that kingdom, a new humanity of new citizens. Paul's had this in mind since the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians. Take a look with me to chapter 1. Just go back a little bit to chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. We haven't been there in a few months. So let's remind ourselves what he even just started the book with, the letter with. Verse 7, he says, In him, Christ... We have redemption through his blood. Amen, church? We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Amen, church? According to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. Amen? Amen? In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. That word mystery is very important to us today. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, which remember that means the anointed one, the anointed king, as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? What is his entire purpose? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, we were redeemed from our enslavement to sin and rebellion by his blood. We were forgiven of our sin all by his grace, nothing we could do to earn it. And this was the mystery of his will, the thing that was hidden but then uncovered. It was for what purpose? The unity of all things in heaven and on earth. I wonder if sometimes we as Christians get it stuck in our mind that the sole goal of Christ dying on the cross was so I could get to heaven. But the reality is, is the gospel is far greater than that. In other words, through the death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Jesus, God the Father made atonement for the sin of mankind 
your rebellion against God and my own. He inaugurated a kingdom over which Christ reigns in righteousness. And Jesus has conquered death and hell to which you and I were enslaved and taken all of us captive by his love and brought us into the kingdom of his light if only we accept his free gift of grace. And what that did was it began the countdown until Christ returns and we stand in a world fully united and reconciled to God, restored to a point where Christ is fully reigning in righteousness and justice. Are you looking forward to that today? If that is not the sole thing that keeps us breathing, is awaiting that day, we have to reevaluate our lives. Not the vacation, that's good. Not the retirement, that's good. But the coming of our Lord and Savior, that is what I'm waiting for with bated breath. Everything else pales in comparison. And in the meantime, we act in a way that shows that that is our hope, that the return of Christ because of Christ and his love is our hope. And we know that in that day, all things will be reconciled and restored And that reconciliation could not occur unless the Gentiles had been grafted in at some point. Up until that point, the nations were divided and Jews and Gentiles lived in absolute hostility towards one another. And if this work of grafting in the Gentiles did not occur, then God's promise to Abraham would not have been fulfilled. Look with me again at Genesis 12. We've looked at it the last couple weeks. Genesis 12, 2 through 3. God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through the Abrahamic line, all the nations of the world would be brought to Yahweh just as Abraham had been called to him. God was in the process of overcoming the rebellion to bring unity and peace and reconciliation. And so Paul, in seeing all of this fulfilled in the church in chapter 2, he stops mid-prayer and remembers who he is writing to. He remembers that most of the people that he was writing to might not even fully understand the gospel. You see, the book of Ephesians was sent not only to Ephesus, but to the circling churches. It was what was called an encyclical And so he wants to stop and make sure people fully grasp the gospel, just as I do to you today. Do you fully understand the the gospel of Jesus Christ? That not only did he die to save you from your sin, that he died in your place as a substitute, but in so doing, he welcomed you into his kingdom in which he now reigns over your life. He reigns over you and all those who you have been reconciled with by his blood. Do you fully grasp that truth? If so, is it playing out in your lives? By the Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would understand the fullness of the gospel. And Paul stops, and he wants wants his readers to understand the same thing. So he pauses as if to say, wait, I want to make sure you understand the gospel that was revealed to me to such an extent that I am willing to be imprisoned if it means I can bring the good news to you Gentiles. He wants to help them understand what was revealed to him, this mystery. Now, the word mystery 
is an interesting word because our word in the English that does come from this Greek word, uh, it means something that's hidden that's not really ever uncovered. Nobody really knows, right? How many of you love a good mystery novel, right? I love reading Agatha Christie. It's one of the things that people are always kind of shocked, like, wow, you're a big dude to be reading Agatha Christie. That's kind of odd, but I love a good murder mystery, right? This word mystery means something hidden that's left hidden that no one can find. They fail to understand it. But the word in the Greek, musterion, it means something that had content which has not been known but has now been revealed to a certain group of people. So what, it is, what is it that has now been revealed to Paul? Let's take a look here. The commentators have debated this at length because of Paul's explanation here. Jump ahead to Ephesians 3.6. We'll get there towards the end of the teaching, but let's just look at what he tells us right away this mystery is. Uh, if you're failing to find something in the word in context, just keep reading. You'll usually find it. It says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Any theology that says that God has a different plan for the Jews than he does for the church does not read this Bible. Look at what it says there. They are members of the same body. So somebody's preaching at you a theology that says, well, God's going to do with this with the Jews over here, and he's going to do this with the church over here. They're not reading Ephesians 3. Okay? This is the mystery he's talking about. But the reason that it's debated is because what Paul says was revealed to him in other letters. Take a look with me at Galatians chapter 1 up on the screen here. In Galatians 1, 11 through 12, he talks about what is revealed to him. Okay? He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? So there's what was revealed to him in Galatians. And so we think, great, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's awesome. And then he says further in Galatians 1, 15 through 16, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Okay? So he was pleased to reveal his son. And so commentators have debated for a long time, is it his son Jesus? Is that the mystery? Or is it this mystery in Ephesians that, The Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body. This mystery seems to be revealed to him in two different ways. Is he saying there's two mysteries? Is he contradicting himself? What is he doing? Well, I don't think that he's contradicting himself. It seems to me that Paul had Christ revealed to him, and in so doing, he also had the reconciliation of the Jewish and Gentile church to the Father also revealed to him. He sees the gospel of Jesus. Yes, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he died for him. But he also sees the fact that what that does is it reconciles those who are his. They're one and the same. And when you know the conversion testimony of Paul, you understand that he believed the good news that Jesus is the Savior and the Christ is part and parcel in his mind with the fact that the Jews and Gentiles have been reconciled. Go with me to Acts chapter 9 and you'll see what I mean. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. This is what Cassie read to us. We're going to just look at a small portion of it. Acts 9 verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus 
So that if you found any belonging to the way, that was the Christian group, the the Jews that were supposed to be an offshoot that believed that Jesus, Yeshua of Nazareth, was the Messiah. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, imprison them and kill them. Okay? And he was doing this not because he was a bad dude, but because he was zealous for the law of Moses. He knew the story of Phineas, that Phineas was so zealous that he would kill on behalf of Yahweh, and he wanted to do the same thing. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Pause. Who is Paul going to persecute? The church of Christian individuals. Notice what Jesus says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say us. He didn't say them. He didn't say the church. He didn't say individuals. He said, why are you persecuting me? And so Saul responded, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus reinforced that the church is not just a bunch of individuals that are each individually reconciled to Christ. That is true, but it's not just that. He reinforced that the church is the body of Christ. How you treat the church is how you treat Christ. That's shocking for some people. But I thought it was just me and Jesus. No, how you treat the church is how you treat Christ. If you don't believe me, look again at what he says. Saul, Saul, you're treating the church a given way, and therefore you are treating me the same way. Jesus reinforces that together, People have been reconciled to Christ, and they share one in the same body. The good news of reconciliation and unity among human beings within the church was just as much a part of the gospel as your and my individual salvation. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 3.8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. We have a very short-sighted view of this. We go back to Genesis 12, and we say, oh, that was just talking about being justified in Christ. That's how the nations are blessed, that every person across the world can be individually justified. That is true. Don't get me wrong. I'm not beating up on that. That is true. But that's short-sighted because what is the end of all things? God reigns in righteousness and justice when who is reconciled? The entire world to one another in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the fullness of the gospel. The good news is that God handed his salvation not just to one particular group, but in calling the Jews, he was merely in the early phases of his plan to give salvation to anyone that desired it the whole world over, Jew or Gentile, male or female, white or black. It doesn't matter who you are because his grace stretches that far. 
There's no separate plan for the nation of Israel separate from the church. There's no special stopwatch for the church and special stopwatch for the Jews. The whole point is that through the Jews, the Messiah emerged that could open up salvation for all people. And that is why we are now part of one in the same body. And in the church, regardless of if the individuals are Jew or Gentile, God is fulfilling his promises to Israel and really to the whole world. He is staying true to his covenant faithfulness to Abraham. And this was the good news that Paul was preaching. But back in Ephesians 3, why don't you go back there with me? Back in Ephesians 3, Paul says something else we must take note of. Take a look at Ephesians 3 verse 4. And we're going to go through just part of five. It says, after he gives the explanation of the gospel that was revealed to him, he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. There it is, right? That's how we know that he's speaking one and the same. He says, mystery of Christ. And in verse six, he'll say the mystery of the Gentiles being grafted in. You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse five, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So pause here for a second. In that first part of the phrase, the misunderstood gospel of previous generations. That's what you can write down. This is the misunderstood gospel of previous generations. And that wording is very specific for a reason. The misunderstood gospel of previous generations. It's an interesting phrase that Paul uses, not made known. Well, Hans, that's not misunderstood, but why do I use that? Well, what did Paul mean here? That it was not made known. I think our English translation is a bit off here, and here's why. This wording almost makes it seem as though God intentionally hid the gospel from previous generations. It was not made known. That, that verb is a passive. It's as if the one who has the power, God, did not do his work to make it known. But guys, this cannot be too true. In Genesis 3.15, we are told there will be one who will crush the serpent's head, the Messiah. In Genesis 12, we've read it multiple times now, Abraham was given an understanding of the good news that would come. So the idea of a savior was not hidden. And this is reinforced when the prophets clearly state that God's people will include the Gentiles. Go with me to the book of Isaiah. It's been a while since we were in there. Why don't you go with me to Isaiah 53? I just can't stay away. I'm sorry. Isaiah 53. And when people read Isaiah 53, man, why is it good news? Tell me, why is it good news? It's good news because it shows that our Savior was going to save us by his death. Praise God. I love Isaiah 53. I can't get enough of that book. You guys remember when the Passion of the Christ came out way back when? They had Isaiah 53 up as the first screen. And I remember going home after that. I was not really following the Lord all that much at that point. We just started going to church. And I didn't realize that Isaiah 53 prophesied the Savior. And so that movie, I saw that first thing and I went, what? And then I proceeded to cry in a puddle the entire movie, uh, heaped up in a ball, right? Uh, realizing my sin. And I went home and I opened up Isaiah 53 and I read verses 4 through 8. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Is that not good news, church? That is good news. We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. It prophesies the cross. Long before Yeshua of Nazareth ever showed up. It's amazing. But guys, it doesn't stop there. When we talked through this, I got some feedback from someone that they were so upset that I didn't spend more time on the cross and I transitioned too quickly to the rest of Isaiah 53. As if to say that the cross is separated from what the cross brings. Look at Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Is that plural or singular, offspring? Plural. Offspring. Who is that offspring? Well, chapter 54 gives it to us. Look down at 54.2. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. You would do this when you had a new baby coming in. It would be like adding a room. Okay? For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. This is very obviously that the Gentiles will be brought in. You can go and read all throughout Isaiah. Early on in Isaiah, it says that the nations will come up to Mount Zion and they will worship the king. So it wasn't as if God had held back Hosea says, I will pull a people to me that are not my people. Over and over again, we see the two together that the gospel of salvation and justification goes along with the reconciliation that brings mankind together. The salvation that each of us are individually so thankful for is intimately tied to the reconciliation Christ brings to his people to form a covenant community together. Yes, the name of Jesus was not known. That the Messiah would come as God incarnate in human flesh, that wasn't totally known. These were both part of the mysterious gospel that wasn't fully known. But it seems to me that even more unknown was the understanding that as God made good on his promises to Israel to save them from their sin and their enemies, he would also be reconciling them with their enemies. This is the radical gospel of reconciliation. He was reconciling humans to one another to form a nation of shalom. And just in case you think I'm a little bit nuts, let me quote to you from someone who's way smarter than me. The theologian and Anglican priest known, known as John Stott, one of the heads of evangelicalism, he stated this well, the point that I'm trying to make in his commentary on Ephesians. His commentary on Ephesians was entitled, God's New Society. The message of Ephesians. Let me read to you from what he says. The living God is the God of all the nations of the world. 
Yet within the universal human community, and he wrote this in the 70s, guy. This, this isn't just some trendy use of the word community over and over again. Yet within the universal human community, there exists a covenant community. We've heard that before, haven't we? His own new society, the beginning of his new creation. That's us. We don't have to wait for the new creation. It's already begun. It is to this people only that he has pledged himself with an everlasting promise. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The gospel, which some of us proclaim, is much too individualistic, he says. Christ died for me, we say. And then sing of heaven, oh, that will be glory for me. Both affirmations are indeed true. As for the first, Paul himself could write, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. As for the so-called glory song, Stott says, the gospel does promise glory for believers in heaven. But this is far from being the full gospel. For it is evident from Ephesians 3 that the full gospel concerns both Christ and the mystery of Christ. The good news of the unsearchable riches of Christ, which Paul preached, is that he died and rose again not only to save sinners like me, though he did, but also to create a single new humanity. Not only to redeem us from sin, but also to adopt us into God's family. Not only to reconcile us to God, but also to reconcile us to one another. Thus, Stott says, the church is an integral part of the gospel. The gospel is good news of a new society as well as of a new life. So why didn't the nation of Israel see this? Why didn't they understand this? Well, it seems to me as I read Scripture that they were blind to it and could not see it, partially because of the sovereignty of God. He knew he could use that to graft into the Gentiles, as Romans says. But it had been preached to them, as we just saw a moment ago, that it was. What kept them from hearing it? Not only the sovereignty of God, yes, But I believe it was because they had become so self-involved and self-focused that they missed the point of why they had been called out of the world to be God's people in the first place. If you read all of the prophets, what is it that he condemns them for? He says, you guys are only worried about your kingdom. You're not worried about mine. God originally called the Jews so that they would be a reflection of him and his glory and power to the world around them. Look at what he says to them through Moses in Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, verse 5 through 8, he says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, Moses says, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, meaning the nations, the Gentile nations. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You see, God wanted them to display to the world around them by the way they lived and the laws they followed that they had as their king a God that was different than the idolatrous nations around them. 
This was God's evangelistic plan, was to have a community that showed his character by their relationships with one another. But they heard the word of God as they desired to hear it in a self-focused way. They began to lift themselves up above others. They began to build their own kingdom rather than live for the kingdom of God he had called them to. And they slowly but surely moved away from the heart of Yahweh, the heart of righteousness and justice, and began to focus on when God would rescue them from all the evil Gentile nations around them, completely missing the point by their desire for escaping that they needed to actually live out a lifestyle of love, mercy, and righteousness and unity so that the nations around them would be drawn to Yahweh. They sat back and waited to escape the world rather than engaging the world with the message of God's truth. And I fear today that this message of individual salvation and personal escapism is lifted up as a gospel, as the fullness of the gospel. And many of us as Christians have fallen into the same understanding that these men of previous generations struggled with. And in so doing, we have individually isolated ourselves, stifling the power of a community that shows a radical gospel of reconciliation. The church is to be a community of Corey Ten Booms. If she was powerful as an individual, imagine what a gospel community like her would be. And Satan stands back and he laughs because by propagating only an individualistic gospel, he has deadened the power that comes from a church that is unified and reconciled to Christ together. When the church is full of individuals, they're only worried about their individual relationship with Christ and not the relationship of their brother and sister with Christ and with one another. We miss the fullness of the multidimensional gospel. We are so focused on Jesus and me that we miss the glorious nature and the powerful witness of Jesus and we. And this is Paul's point as we finish off our text back in Ephesians 4. Why don't you go there with me? Or Ephesians 3, excuse me. Ephesians 3, verses 4 through 6. The last thing that Paul is going to proclaim for us is he's going to proclaim the glorious gospel of reconciliation has now been revealed. The glorious gospel of reconciliation has now been revealed. For us to be able to fulfill our mission as the people of God reflecting Christ to the world and witnessing to the miraculous truth of this amazing gospel, Our communal life must overflow with the fact that the gospel of reconciliation has taken effect. Our words mean nothing unless they come as an overflow of what's already occurred in our lives. And this is because the fullness of the gospel is seen by the world in the midst of a reconciled new covenant community. It is seen in unity and selflessness. It's seen in a group of people that put down their own personal wounds, their own fears, the hurts that they'd suffered at the hands of the other, and they try again for reconciliation. I'm so blessed when I watch a couple in the midst of marriage counseling, in the midst of conflict, and one of them realizes that something has to change in order for things to get better. And they stop and they pause and they attempt to repair the brokenness of the relationship. I'm so thankful for those of you that have taken that call on seriously. 
that you don't just passively dismiss things or hold things at bay, but you go to people and you say, this is needed. I can't sit as your brother or sister in passiveness or in distance. I must reconcile with you. That's the gospel. And when a person comes in this church, that maybe they believe they're a Christian or maybe they're not a Christian at all, and they watch that, that's what is endearing about Christ to them. Telling them about some transcendental God that is far off but sent his son 2,000 years ago, they kind of go, okay, that's good for you. But when they see the love of the Christian church for one another, you know what they say? That's good for me. I want that. That's the gospel that Christ is calling us to preach and we cannot do it alone. Again, quoting from Stott, he says this, to sum up, we may say that the mystery of Christ is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles with each other through the union of both with Christ. It is this double union with Christ and with each other which was the substance of the mystery. What neither the Old Testament nor Jesus revealed was the radical nature of God's plan, which was that the theocracy of the Jewish nation under God's rule would be terminated and replaced by a new international community made up of Jews and Gentiles known as the church. That this church would be the body of Christ, organically united to him, and that Jews and Gentiles would be incorporated into Christ and his church on equal terms without any distinction. It was this complete union of Jews, Gentiles, and Christ which was radically new and which God revealed to Paul overcoming his entrenched Jewish prejudice. Guys, our entire world is based on hostility. I jokingly thought about putting up a a sign on the screen that had a beaver on one side and a duck on the other. Even what we find fun is hostile. Let's switch it to a Republican elephant and a Democrat donkey. Let's switch it to people who like to breastfeed or people who like to bottle feed. Let's teach, switch it to homeschool or private school or public school. Let's switch it to people who do vaccines or people who don't do vaccines. And somehow we all attach them to the gospel. That you're unrighteous if you do one that is different from me. Guns or no guns. Wall or no wall. And yet we call ourselves messengers of the gospel. The reality is, is messengers of the gospel preach reconciliation, not just with their words, but by their actions. In Paul's conversion experience on the road to Damascus, Christ so impressed upon Paul the radical nature of God's reconciling love that it turned him from a man intent on imprisoning and killing Christian saints into a man that desired to lay down his life even to the point of being imprisoned and killed himself for the church. There's a wonderful quote by St. Clement of Alexandria. He says, For the sake of each of us, Jesus laid down his life worth no less than the entire universe. What he demands of us in return is our lives for the sake of each other. And Paul knew this demand well. This level of reconciliation was so radically new that Paul had to come up with his own words in the Greek to describe it. That's how radical it was. 
If you take a look in verse 6 there, there's three phrases that are three words in the Greek. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers. Sinkleronoma, uh, sisoma, and simitoka. Okay? Three totally, basically new words that are known only after Paul wrote them. Definitely the middle one, sisoma, was an invention of Paul. And in front of all of these words is the prefix soon, together. In other words, what he's saying is this. He's saying, together we are heirs. Together we are Christ's body. And together we are partakers of the covenant of promise. Do you think he was trying to preach a message of unity to the church at Ephesus? The witness of the gospel lies in God's salvation of the individual. Yes, it does. Don't ever get rid of that church. Glory in the fact that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. But what a powerful testimony it is when the gospel of reconciliation and unity becomes effective in God's covenant community to the extent that the world can look at the church and say, for what community of people is there? that has a God so near to it as this Jesus guy? And what community of people is there who live in justice and righteousness with the goal of right relationship in their midst? We're better reconciled together than we are apart. And so this morning for application, it's pretty simple. I I want all of us to truly pause and ponder the radical nature of the gospel that brings reconciliation And let that overflow into radical reconciliation with one another. Guys, if you stop and spend even 10 minutes this week pondering it, you'll recognize that maybe you have something against somebody in kid's wing, and that's why you keep your kid out when they're in there, and you need to reconcile. Maybe you're a person who gets frustrated when Michael leads, or maybe you're going to be a person who gets frustrated when Seth leads, and you need to reconcile. Maybe you're a person that really just, you stick it out when I preach, but you really like it when Pat preaches. You need to reconcile. Maybe you're a person that doesn't go to that community group because, man, there's that one family who I just, ah, you need to reconcile. If you spend even 10 minutes purposing to think about this this week, you will find a way that God calls you to unify in this church. And then we must come under conviction that while each of us must understand the personal gospel, that Jesus died to save each one of us. We cannot allow that to eclipse the miraculous gospel that Jesus' plan was to unite all things together in him. And so we need to do our part to take our theology captive to him and ask whether or not everything within us, all of our theology is individual or not. Let me give you some examples. It's a great way for you to test. Is worship for you and Jesus or is it for the congregation and Jesus? Is your eschatology, the way you view end times, about how you escape all the hard things in life? Or is it about bringing reconciliation to the world? Is the the way you view the spirit, your pneumatology, is it about you and how the spirit makes you feel and whether or not you feel loved by Christ? Or is it about the spirit dwelling in the midst of the church so you can have a tangible experience of the love of Christ through his spirit? Is reading the word about what you get out of it Or is it about the amazing orthodoxy that God has given for 2,000 years to his church? Is your theology individualistic or is it communal? 400 years ago, the Protestant Reformation took place in part because the Catholic Church had so overemphasized the importance of the church 
that the salvation of the individual became lost. But it seems to me that today we need to correct the overcorrection. The gospel is both individual and communal. The body cannot be the body without the members. And the members cannot be members if they are not part of the body. We must bring our theology under this truth of a high view of the church. And so not only do we need to act upon reconciliation and bring our theology in under reconciliation, but third and lastly, we need to cry out with one voice in this church. We need to cry out with the voice that God's given us by the power of the Holy Spirit for the Lord to give us fresh revelation of what Paul had oozing out of him. We need to beg Christ in prayer for his spirit to come upon this church so fully and the church of Salem and Kaiser so fully and the church of the global church that the unity and reconciliation oozes out of us like it did Paul. It's this radical selflessness towards the goal of reconciliation and unity that begins within this body and pours out to the rest of the world. And if we get this, if we truly understand this, if we ponder how to act upon it, bring our theology under it, live it out, we will be evangelizing in a way in this community that will draw people to the radical gospel of reconciliation. We are called to more in this church than just having acquaintances or shallow friendships. We are called to a profound unity with one another, a deep-seated work of knowing and being known amongst his people. We're called to bear one another's burdens, weep with one another in pain, rejoice with one another in celebration, and all the while proclaim to the world around us that God has won and his kingdom has begun. For the sake of each of us, he laid down his life worth no less than the universe. He demands of us in return our lives for the sake of each other. In a world that so glorifies individualism and autonomy, this gospel is a scandalous message. That God would lay down his life for us so that we might lay down our lives for each other. But because it's so radical and so scandalous, it just might call the world around us to know the source of the love we have for each other.